0: The suffered their first loss of the season last week. They have a big game coming up this week. Men's Basketball Media Day was today. And, of course, the Denver Broncos played a game last week. And I don't know if that's a good enough description, but we'll get into all of that. They did
1: play a football game, Jack. Can't did. confirm.
0: Yeah, it, it did happen. We'll get into all of that on this week's edition of the Howell Stern Sports Show here at KVCU Radio 1190. First off, let's t- let's talk about the buffs. So the team that everyone's talking about right now, the, the story, a lot of things went went wrong in their 31 to 20 loss against the USC Trojans. First off, let's start off with the inevitable though. CS uh USC had three huge scoring drives in the second quarter there where they took advantage and jump started that deep ball. What did you
1: see go on there? Well, you kind of said it right there. They they just started getting behind CU's defense. CU was loading the box. They made sure to stop USC's run, and so USC made their adjustments, and they started testing the deep ball a little bit. They started using some double moves with their wide receivers that was getting them open, and they started hitting on a few of them. JT Daniels, he's he, was, he looked a little bit better than I thought. Obviously, he had a rough first quarter, uh, throwing two interceptions, two interceptions that the CU de- defense read really well. Uh, one of them was a great play by Drew Lewis to get us started. And they just started finding the open spaces in CU's defense, and they went off in that second quarter.
0: Yeah, the defense, and especially the secondary, was particular co- particularly concerning. I think the most worrisome aspect of their performance, though, was how the young guys struggled. Chris Miller gave up a big play. Um, Evan Worthington, I know he's older, but he showed that you know he's not the best cover safety in the game. And Davion, uh, excuse me, Delrick Abrams, who previously looked like their number one corner, looks susceptible at times. So. This secondary, which looked very good the first few weeks of the season and then took a step back against one of the more elite receiving units, is going to have to be better going forward, especially with some of the receivers on their schedule. This week they face off against Aaron Fuller, who's currently second in the conference in receiving yards behind the aforementioned LaVisca Chennault, and then Ty Jones, who leads the conference in yards per catch with receivers that have 15 catches or more. So, Needless to say, I think they're going to need to
1: get better going forward. Right, and I'm sure some of the adjustments will be made. For the most part, it, it was the double moves that was getting the corners in particular, Chris Miller and Delrick Abrams. They just weren't quite prepared for those routes. I don't know um, if it didn't show up on much USC tape, but they were burning them on the double moves, and that that is something that the CU defense will have to make some adjustments. I, I definitely still think that – the. Defensive backs is probably the strong suit of the defense. Really Just went up against some really, really good even w- even wide after
0: series. the defensive line held USC to 67 yards on the ground and more importantly limited. Well, when really
1: you load the run. box with eight or nine guys, you're gonna you're gonna shut down their running.
0: Yeah, but the penetration. See, I I understand where you're coming from, but but the penetration that they're getting up front on the defensive line, especially with Mustafa Johnson, who's been a bona fide impact player. On the team so far, I think they're doing a pretty good job, and they're definitely a lot better than last year.
1: I think you could argue that the linebackers are better than the defensive backs, but I think overall on the on the season, the corners have, or no, mostly the defensive backs in particular have just been uh, a little bit better than the other parts of the defense. They just they haven't been given up the big plays. When you look at the season as a whole, obviously yeah, USC USC is a little bit different, but. Yeah, CU's game plan going in was we're going to play cover zero, we're going to play a little bit cover one, and we're going to see if JT Daniels can beat us with his arm, and he did a little bit in the second quarter. I, I don't put that on the defensive backs. So I was just CU's game plan, and it was a pretty good game plan. CU just didn't put enough points up on the other side of the ball t- to make up for it.
0: Let's get to the other side of the ball where they, la- they pretty much lacked firepower all night long. And I think part of that has to go upstairs to coach Chev and his play calling. Previously, they'd run a lot of jet sweeps, a lot of slants, bubble screens, plays where the ball gets out of the quarterback's hand, particularly fast. And when USC was able to limit those plays and shut them down, it seemed like they kind of lacked an identity on offense. And more importantly, they just couldn't move the ball all night long. That is until USC entered a prevent defense later on in the fourth quarter. But I think that they need to establish a much more diverse playbook aside from those four plays and the Wildcat quarterback with LaVisca Chenault, which of course worked on Saturday night. But going forward, if you want to move the ball on a more consistent basis, not only that, but keep defenses guessing and off balance, which is an important part of winning games, especially as their schedule gets tougher here late into October and November, you need to have a bigger playbook and more fallback options if plan A doesn't work.
1: People have been saying it all week. It was a very suspect game plan by Coach Chev. He thought what had worked for him in the first five games was going to work for him again against USC. And USC was just too well prepared for that. And they have too many athletes on that defensive side of the ball. CU tried to out-athlete USC, which just isn't going to happen. The USC recruits too well, and CU's never going to out-recruit USC, and that's where you get the athletes. And they tried to keep throwing the ball in the flat, just couldn't, couldn't get anything going with that type of offense. And you're exactly right. Chev will have to learn how to make some adjustments, especially during the game. Yeah. I think we could all see it in, in basically the first quarter that this isn't going to work. Yeah. What has worked in the past few weeks isn't going to work this game. you got to yeah. make some adjustments, Chev, and he really did it it's 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 strange because you have this yin le- yang dilemma where one week
0: he's a genius running all these trickery type plays moving running up and down the field spreading the ball around all over the place and then when it doesn't work he looks like an idiot you know mm-hmm. what i mean not an idiot but he doesn't look as smart as he did
1: the first few weeks but and, what? and credit to chef cuz he he manned up about it he said yeah he, did. he said it was his fault he, he said t- he was going to yeah, he I, took the blame. Like I, you're I think say. that shows a lot
0: about his true colors, and I think that uh, the Buffs got a really good guy as the offensive coordinator. Because as we were talking about a little bit earlier off the air, many coaches will throw their players under the bus when the team struggles. Chev was willing to look in the mirror and say, "Hey, I have playmakers. I have guys on this on this side of the ball who can." help us move it down the field. And you know what? It's my fault that I didn't maximize their production and put us in a position to score points on Saturday. I think that takes a lot as a person, so I really like that from his character. Yeah, You
1: you really don't see many coaches at all in any sport, in any league, just come out and say that it was their fault. Yeah. Because... I I don't know why. I guess that's just our sports culture. But I I was actually surprised to see that. And Chev is the type of person to say, hey, that that was my fault. Because it is good for recruiting and that kind of stuff. Because these recruits see these articles.
0: Yeah, they, they definitely understand the nature of the situation. But let's also talk about Steven Montez. I think we saw the Montez of last year against USC. It seemed like he was staring down... Chanel or whoever his number one receiver was on a given play. He looked kind of panicky back there. He was getting happy feet in the pocket. He was making a few steps aside, but not really rolling out or deciding what he wanted to do. Very indecisive in a sense. But you have to hope that that was just a flash in the pan and he'll be a lot better
1: next week. Right. He, he just looked a little bit intimidated by USC. Like He, he just wasn't ready for the moment or, or whatever it is. And that happens. It, happens. it happened to Cepho when he played a big team, too. It's just, it, you just get a little bit panicky, like you said. Every time he didn't have his first read, he'd just back out and try to scramble and then find somebody. And, and that just wasn't working because USC is too athletic when, you, when he tried to get it out of the pocket and he just got sacked way too many times, way too many plays for, for loss. And that's how your offense gets stopped and held to that amount of points. And while we're talking about
0: Steven Montez, let's talk about perhaps the quirkiest play of the entire season. Down 31 20, late, or 31 f- uh, 14, excuse me, late in the fourth quarter, Montez runs for a touchdown, narrowing this deficit to 31 20. They go for a two point conversion, they don't get it, and later after the game, Coach McIntyre admits that they thought that they didn't get a touchdown and that it was. Fourth, uh, first and one from the one-yard line. So kind of a weird play. I don't think we've seen anything of that nature the entire season, quite honest with you, but that's kind of inexcusable from a coach's standpoint. I know there was confusion in the press box, in the stadium, but you have to be paying attention to what's happening on the field, and you can't let that type of thing happen.
1: Yeah, at the end of the day, there w- there was one ref that was signaling a touchdown. You can see it in the replay. I think there was a picture flowing around Twitter yeah, there was. As the head coach, you have to know. There are refs around you. You have to know whether that was ruled a touchdown or on the one. Yeah. I, I, it, you're right. You said it best. It's, it, it's inexcusable.
0: It, it's especially at this level. And earlier, they had a chance to cut the deficit to eight instead of nine, and they don't go for the two-point conversion, which makes it, in hindsight,
1: even look worse. Right. We were talking about that. They were down. Uh, they made it down 13 So they kicked the extra point, or no, sorry, excuse me, they were down 15, they kicked the extra point, and were down 14, where they could have been down 13, because USC then went down and kicked a field goal, and CU was down 16, which would have been a two-score game had CU gone for two. Instead, they were down 17, and then they ended up going for two for absolutely no reason. Yeah, we're talking Buffs football here on Radio 1190. Later on,
0: we'll recap the men's basketball media day, and... Talk about the other team in Denver that's currently struggling more than the Buffs. But the good news about the last Buffs game, I think it's fair to say that both on the coaching side and the players' side, it wasn't their best effort at all. Mm-hmm. The good news is, it's one game, they still have a shot to win the Pac-12 South, and at this point, all they need to do is put it behind them.
1: Mm, and everybody seemed to be held accountable for it. Yeah, We talked about Chev. seemed like McIntyre knows some of the mistakes he made. Steven Montez as well. It seems like during his press conference, he knows what was going on there. Um, One of the interesting things that I wanted to point out was Steven Montez threw four passes for longer than 20 yards that entire game. They didn't stretch that defense out at all, and I think that would have really helped him had he tried to throw the deep ball. He didn't throw any of them over the middle, which surprises me. And they have a weapon like Jalen Jackson now who is healthy, Who you can throw deep routes over the middle, and they didn't want to use them until later in the game when they were basically out of it, so that was surprising to me that they didn't want to utilize the deep ball at all, because Montez looked really good throwing the deep ball against ASU, and they have some weapons there, even when Visca and some other guys were hurt. Katie Nixon is a great weapon.
0: Katie Nixon, Tony Brown is a bigger bodied wide receiver who they can utilize on these jump ball 50-50 type throws. But let's talk a little bit about the other... Let's give an injury update, and then let's talk a little bit about these other wide receivers. Now, Coach McIntyre said on Tuesday, final day of media availability, before before all the media members seemingly migrated to the Coors, CU Event Center for Basketball Media Day, he said that LaVisca Chenault was day-to-day with presumably a toe sprain. He hey, seems... I believe it's turf toe. Turf toe, yeah. I mean, it doesn't seem like a serious injury, but it's... Hurts him and enough as a wide receiver who has to push off
1: his feet to run routes that they're gonna they're keeping they're being cautious with him. Yeah, turf toe is one of those injuries that sounds like a small injury, but when you're at, it, when you actually have it, it does bother you on pretty much every route. That
0: and does. and unfortunately, like a hamstring injury or an ankle sprain, like Juwan Winfrey has. I feel like it kind of lingers a little bit. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not going to go away overnight or even in a matter of weeks. So he's day-to-day and questionable to play with a toe injury. Juwan Winfrey has missed the past four games with a high ankle sprain, which is a really just tough injury to have. Coach Chev said earlier in the week that When he was in the NFL, that injury had the most variable timetable. Some guys miss three weeks. Some guys miss an entire season, depending on the severity. So that's kind of a weird uh, injury to have. So their two best wide receivers, arguably, are going to be out of the game. They need to find other ways to win this one.
1: Yeah, those are two injuries that are kind of, like you mentioned, they're game-time decision type of injuries. You really don't know how you feel until you get into the game. So it's not like McIntyre is hiding anything from him. I, I do think they're really going to test if Jawan will be ready to go. Um, we'll know more on Friday about Jawan Winfrey because he didn't travel to USC. No. So if he travels to Washington, that's at least a, a good sign and for the And the
0: good news to add on to that is that he was practicing this week. He was mm-hmm. back in practice. Sometimes he was, the past few weeks, he's been a limited participant. He sat out the 11-on-11 11 11 period. So I think it's... At minimum, good to see him out back on. Yeah, it. it does
1: seem like there's been a lot more good news about Jawan coming from this week. But if they don't have those two, they they are going to have to find some different ways to win, and they're going to need Tony Brown, Katie Nixon, Jalen Jackson. We didn't even mention Jay McIntyre. No, he, who yeah is he's, going through concussion protocol. He's, he's
0: a, it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't seem likely that he's going to play. He suffered a pretty nasty injury against yeah, USC. Yeah, I would say
1: he's probably the least likely out of the three to play. Yeah. If, uh, if that's fair, I'd put him at, had put him at like 25%, Visca at like 50%, and Jawan actually at 75%. I think Jawan has, has the best chance to play.
0: I would agree with that. Now, the dilemma that we're facing here, to play or not to play Visca, here's where I'm at in this situation. I wouldn't play him for several reasons, one of which is it's, it's a lingering injury and there's no chance that he's going to be even close to 100% by the time game time comes around now. Visca at 70 or 80% is probably as good as most receivers in the Pac-12. But at the same time, I wouldn't want to run the risk of re-aggravating this injury. Number two, Buffs fans are going to hate me for saying this, but I don't think they have the best chance of beating Washington. And why risk him re-aggravating that injury in a game that you probably won't win no matter what? Number three, this game doesn't mean a whole lot when you look at the big picture. They still have flip games against foes within their division in Arizona and Utah and a big game at home against Washington State. If they lose this game, it's not the end of the world. They still can win the Pac-12 South. They still can control their destiny, especially if Utah beats USC on Saturday. I, ju- I just think that you sit him out for this one, and depending on how he feels against Oregon State, you try to give it a go then.
1: Right, and I, I think you're right in your your entire premise of that. If I were the coach, I'd probably want to sit him. But Now, you, you never the, give that away. The, right, <laughs> right. We, we were talking about that as well, that if you're McIntyre, you, you probably just I, – I would just say that he's playing all, the whole entire week because I'd want Washington to prepare for him and then realize that he's not playing. And the other point I was going to make, which has to do with that, is you can send him out there, you can dress him, and you can use him as a decoy because everybody knows about him. So when he's out on the field – they're going to be keying in on him because Washington doesn't know the severity of his injury. So they're going to yeah. be keying on, in on him when he's on the field. And then you can use your your other weapons and kind of utilize LaVisca as a decoy and not even throw him the ball that much.
0: Yeah, that's, that's an excellent point. I'm really curious to see what they have to do. But I don't think it should be panic mode if he can't go. They have a lot of other weapons at the position, especially if you get Juwan Winfrey back. Katie Nixon has been a proven playmaker. He Not as much so the last game, but against Arizona State, he made a couple big plays. And then Jalen Jackson, the guy we've been talking about a lot on this show, has been through an extremely rough stretch the past two years with injuries. I was more than impressed with what I saw out of him, even if he only had two catches. Mm-hmm. He's a really good route runner. He's speedy. He's fast. He has good instincts. And as a slot receiver, when you draw the matchup against the linebacker or the safety, I, I, I'm i excited to see this kid play more. Hopefully I, we see him in more packages. Yeah, he
1: really had three catches. One, The third one was called back for holding. after. So he, he got out there and had two immediate catches during his first two plays. And then it was a little bit later when he had that third catch and it was called back for holding. He had another target after that that um, was over the middle. There was just too many defenders there. But but you're right, he has good instincts as a slot receiver. It seems like that's just a position that he's really comfortable in. And he, he he has a good, really good ability of reading the linebackers and knowing where to go and finding the open spaces, which you really need as a slot receiver. And he has the speed to burn as well. And I think they can utilize him over the top and with underneath routes. And I think he's a weapon because... Teams don't really know much. You know. Yeah,
0: that's what I'm thinking. Right now, he's a big unknown, and you can you can pretty much draw up a different a, a ton of different packages for him. Uh, we saw it at high school, just looking at his tape when he played at Cedar Hill. Good off the screen, good in space, kind of like a punt returner. Right, think.
1: they they used him as a running back a lot at Cedar yeah. Hill as well. Yeah, so, as a little scat back. You can throw screens, too. He's a, he's
0: a lot like KD Nixon, and I think maybe even has a little bit more explosiveness to him over the middle and in terms of making men miss and breaking tackles.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So um, I think that he should be utilized a lot more in their game plan. Especially
1: but, if Jay McIntyre doesn't Yeah, play, oh, definitely. It doesn't seem like it
0: well. One of the things that came about as a result of the Buffs' loss on Saturday was they fell out of the AT, AP's top 25. Now, they have a better record than a couple of the teams that are still ranked. Washington State snuck their way into the rankings with a big win. People are always going to say that the Buffs haven't really beaten anyone yet, but look, they've done a good job beating the team in front of them. They played a tight game with USC, even though they, they struggled for much of the first half. It's, it's hard to justify moving them so far down that they're completely out of the rankings when they were ranked 21st the week before. I think they kind of got gypped on this one.
1: Yeah, I kind of see it from both sides. And I'm having a hard time kind of seeing where I land. But I don't mind that they were outside of the top 25. I was a little bit actually surprised by it because they were in the coaches top 25, which obviously comes out before the AP on Sunday. So I almost kind of expected them to be right there at 25 on the AP as well. And then they ended up not being until like 30, which tells me that a lot of sports writers stayed up and uh, watched that game, which I was kind of surprised to hear as well, because it was obviously a late start. So I was thinking maybe some of the AP voters went to bed early. It seems like the coaches went to bed early, but uh, AP voters did not. They stayed up and watched the buffs and, they ended up outside the AP poll. I think obviously if they win this week they're probably going to be right back in it. Oh, definitely, but so, that's that's a big if. So, thinking circumstantially,
0: circumstantially if, if they lose this week, but they win out the rest of the way, they finish the season 10 and 2. I think that you have to rank them inside the top 20 regardless.
1: Right. And the year that they did go 10 and 2 2 years ago in 2016, they ended up in like the top 10. They were ranked 16th that yeah, but bef- when they were 10 and 2 before the Pac 12 championship yeah, game, they, I think they were like number nine Yeah, before like the Pac 12 championship game. So, yeah, I c- think they could end up pretty high as long as they went out. Their schedule isn't great, so they still wouldn't have a huge win if they finished 10 and 2. Maybe Utah, it looks like, could be a pretty big win, and Washington yeah. State as well, but. Uh, even those two could fall, fall back a little bit as they play more Pac-12 competition.
0: Yeah, one more thing uh, to note in Saturday's game, out of respect for the guy, Jace Frankie, great person, great leader in the locker room. His college career came to an unfortunate end when he tore his ACL in the game against USC. And that was just kind of a sad way for everything to end for him and it was a stark and harsh reminder that this can be taken away from you at any moment. I wish Jace the best of luck and it was great getting to watch a guy like that, gritty, hard-nosed, and it was particularly upsetting when you consider the context. He was coming into his own as a rotational guy this year. He emerged as one of the leaders in the locker room as a Redshirt senior and For him to tear his ACL and have to get taken off the field uh, playing in front of his friends and family in Southern Cal, it it was just a sad ending for him.
1: Yeah, it it was just a horrible sight. Um, You never want to see that, especially a guy like him that just has worked his butt off for the last four years to even try to get playing time. And he has turned into a really solid player even uh, last couple of years but this year he's looked r- really really good like like he took no- an extra step and just to see his season come to an end like that was was really sad but it does mean some more opportunities for some younger guys especially Terrence Lang I think we're going to see Terrence Lang on the field a lot more which makes things interesting because he his athleticism is unlike any other defensive lineman yeah. on the team so he can be a real difference maker But it was rough to see uh, Jace go down like that.
0: Yeah, most definitely. But now looking ahead and previewing the game against the Washington Huskies, the Huskies are currently ranked 15th in the country. They're uh, in second place in the North after losing to the Oregon Ducks last weekend in an upset game in Eugene. But this is a team that's had the Buffs number, in particular, the past two years. They've outscored them 78 to 20 in two in two contests dating back to the 2016 Pac-12 Championship game. They have some weapons at wide receiver. Miles Gaskin has broken his own career records the past two times he's faced the Buffs, and Miles has literally run for miles against CU, wearing out the grass underneath him. You need to find a way to stop this offense. Period. No matter no matter what it is.
1: Yeah, and it, it has been a real struggle for the CU team uh, last two years. The Washington's offensive line really just dominated CU last year. Obviously, CU's uh, yeah. Uh, obviously, CU's defensive line uh, is much improved this year, so there'll be a little bit of a change there, but. Um, but I still think they're going to have to find ways to slow, slow them down, and that's going to be really difficult when you're talking about some really good wide receiver weapons like you mentioned in Fuller and Jones, and then you also got Miles Gaskin, and they got a few other running backs that are pretty good. It, it's so Savan
0: ah Savanna Ahmed. And yeah, they have a they have a good backfield. But that point about how they have to stop the offense from multiple dimensions really brought an interesting point to my head, which for this defensive line, it's like baptism by fire for the second half of the season. You're going against one of the best offensive lines not just in the conference, but in the nation, and you have to stop a run game, which they've struggled to stop. They have they seem to have taken a step forward. They're doing a better job stopping the run. But this is going to be the real litmus test to see where they're really actually at and how good they are as a unit, because this is a really good run game, and they've been able to move the ball against a lot of people. And that's an important... Uh, thing and stopping U.S. Uh, Washington's offense in general because of how explosive they are with their wide receivers. Because Jake Browning can make a lot of throws outside of the pocket and because they have that deep ball in their repertoire. You, ne- you need to stop the run game against this team. Make th- And make them one-dimensional.
1: Right, and that's going to be the big difficulty for the Buffs. Do you load the box like you did against USC? Make sure you stop the run game and then Try to stop their weapons one on one. It's it's a tough team to game plan for, and that that's what makes them so hard to stop. Especially when you have such a cerebral quarterback in Jake Browning that makes that seems to always make the right decision out there.
0: If I'm defensive coordinator D.J. Elliott, I'm dialing up the blitz more times than not. Jake Browning when he struggles. There's always a lot of pressure on him from what I've seen just watching his game tape, watching him the last few years playing the Pac-12. You need to dial it up and get some pressure on him, get him out of his comfort zone, and that's how the defense is going to be successful but on he, Saturday.
1: But Browning is also good when he gets out of the pocket. Like yeah. I think McIntyre talked about it this week, yeah. that he does a really good job of getting his eyes downfield and finding the open guy. So it's... It, If they do bring a lot of blitzes, they'll have to keep some contain on Browning and not allow him to get outside. Yeah, I think you need to keep him
0: confined to the pocket, to Mm -hmm. be honest.
1: Yeah, forcing him to make throws in the pocket will help you win that game.
0: Yeah, I I agree. It'll be an interesting one. Score prediction-wise, I don't think there's going to be a lot of points scored in this game. I'm taking Washington 28-13 over the Buffs in Seattle on
1: Saturday. I'm... Basically the same prediction as you. I, I've been at thirty-one seventeen, with Huskies, which is just a few more points than you had,
0: uh,
1: a, a touchdown instead of a field goal, basically for each team. So, yeah, I think Washington will find a way to score some, put up some points see yeah. you. They aren't going to run wild on them, but they, I do think that.
0: They hey, knock, the- knock on wood. Let's let's hope they don't <laughs> run wild. I think that they could have potentially have some se- success. In the running game, but yeah, I mean the thing is, if you want to be considered one of the premier teams in the country, you have to beat the Goliath and the Big
1: Brother in the conference, and the Buffs just haven't been able to do that the past few years. Yeah, the interesting part for me will be how this offense responds. What what does Chef have up his sleeve? Try to score some more points against Washington than he did against USC, and if they come out running the same plays, I, I don't think that's going to work. So they're going to need to find some new plays that work, maybe some gadget plays, some trick plays. And I I think that they will score maybe one touchdown off that, but they're not going to be able to uh, go off on a really good Washington Huskies defense that we didn't even get to talk about much, but really good defensive backs, really good defensive Unbelievable. Uh, I was talking to
0: a uh, Huskies beat writer from the Seattle Times when they were here in town last year, and he told me that the – Washington team only recruits about four or five defensive backs a year, mm-hmm. and they're always the top of the, uh, in the top of the country because they want guys that they see going to the NFL. Mm-hmm. And they've produced a lot of really good NFL defensive backs, Sidney Jones, Desmond Trufant. You know, they, they, they have a good track record in doing this and their secondary is always good as advertised byron murphy is perhaps one of the best dbs in the country taylor rapp has been banged up a little bit but they you know he's been good and miles bryant killed them last year with that picked six which pretty much put the nail in the coffin for the buffs in that game so right
1: and i think it's the defensive line that you should really worry worry about with how their offensive line looked this past week washington always does a good job of recruiting defensive linemen. It's usually actually big running backs that they like to recruit. that. Sometimes they play both sides of the ball, but they really like the ones that play running back and then are able to switch over to defensive line, those really, really big guys such as uh, Gaines. He's probably their top.
0: That's a really interesting
1: tidbit from the recruiting expert, Mr. Chase
0: Howell here. It'll be an, an interesting game to watch. I expect to see a little bit of a dogfight in the trenches, so to speak, and maybe early on even like a field position battle where teams are they're punting back and forth and trying to get a little bit of space to kick the ball back away. But talking about another ethical dilemma, if you will, in college football that didn't occur here in Colorado, Nick Bosa earlier this week, the junior who was a top draft boards across the country. Still and is. Still is. Suffered a pectoral injury. In the team's second game, I want to say mm-hmm. of the season, and has been out since. And he announced that he was not going to be returning to Ohio State. He was going to declare for the draft. Not only that, he was going to. He went the full nine yards and proven that point. He dropped out of school. He moved all his stuff out of his Columbus apartment, and he seemingly just left the program pretty much to go to the NFL. Is College football becoming a little bit like college basketball in this sense because it was I don't think I've ever seen something like this before where a guy completely quits and says, I'm done, you know, I'm going in the NFL, I'm not risking further injury, I'm not coming back to play for you guys no matter what, and that, that that's it. It's just kinda ended. That's that's the best way I can describe it.
1: Uh to answer your question, is it becoming like college basketball? It's not one and done, but you, you know uh, Yeah, what I mean. yeah. The biggest difference is obviously that you have to stay at football for three years. But I do think that kids are getting a little bit smarter about thinking about their future. And obviously, every college football player's goal is to play in the NFL. So they have advisors and those types of people that are in their ears telling them the right moves. And in that, I do think it's becoming a little bit like college basketball because you're seeing more family advisors and those types of things. And they have to make the best decision for themselves. And I, I do think Nick Bosa made a good decision here. He's going to be a first-round pick either way, really, if yeah. he stayed or not. And as someone that has to go through school, I don't think I, I would want to do it if I knew that I was going to make millions whether I went to school yeah. or not. So I think he's – And especially in football where these guys are getting beat
0: up play after play and, you know, the career span is much shorter than it is in the NBA – kind of makes sense in that in that regard, too.
1: Right. Yeah, I think it's a good decision for his future, and I think it's good that people are realizing that you don't necessarily need college football to make it to the NFL. No. O- obviously, Nick Bosa put up some tape in college football to make him a first. Some draft tape, pick.
0: I mean, he was he was an absolute <laughs> mauler. He looked a lot like his brother uh, down
1: there. He was just killing it, right? Yeah, he looks like basically a clone. But um, I I think that as kids get smarter and smarter, we will see some some different um, different techniques. Maybe you want to say of getting around the NCAA system, and I don't think it's a problem at all because. Uh, as an anti-NCA guy myself, I don't think it's a problem
0: at all. Yeah, that, that makes sense, but it'll it, it'll just be something that's interesting to keep an eye on going forward. If a guy's has higher draft stock, he's projected to go higher up in the draft, does he kind of sit out and, you know, let's say he pulls a hammy in the fourth game of the season. Does he just call it quits then? You know, I think we might see things like more things like that or situation arise where that type of thing happens.
1: And it all kind of depends on how much you care about your team, how much you care about your school. Yeah. Some of these guys everybody's different. Some of them, you know, have been Bryce, dreaming dreaming Bryce, about playing for their school. Bryce Love, for
0: example, I mean, that man plays through every injury. He was projected to go as high as the 3rd round in some mock drafts last year. He made the decision to return because he loves Stanford. Other guys not so much as uh, about the school. They kind of want to find the way to maximize their personal revenue and hey, I can't blame them, but at the
1: same time, it's an interesting dilemma to watch. The thing that helps this is the insurance policies that these guys are taking out now, which is really smart. I saw that Josh Adams, uh, his insurance policy went through today. He made $500,000 because he got hurt uh, last year during his Notre Dame season at the end, and that made him go undrafted. So he he made his insurance claim and ended up making $500,000 off of it, which is kind of a way to, to get around to still be committed to your team it's not as worried about your future yeah
0: do we potentially see more insurance policy type things come up in the next few years where teams can not sign a contract with their team but say hey if i get hurt i'm going to be owed some money by the university something like this or that i know it's that brings up a weird argument but considering the nature of the sport the fact that injuries are happening happening at a higher rate Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think we could see some small things like that come
1: about. And as much as the NCAA wants to avoid it, these kids are looking at college football as the step in between the NFL. So Yeah,
0: and as a profession, pretty much. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's playing, logistically speaking, playing in college football is not that much different than the NFL. You know, you have to go to the weight room in the morning. You have practice right after sometimes a lift right after. Then you have film sessions and walkthroughs at night. So logistically speaking, it's really not that much different. Right. It's, it's kind of like the minor league, so to
1: speak. And as you went over that schedule, I was thinking, I'm even more pro-Nick Bosa. Why would he want to spend all those hours during the day when he can just spend a few hours preparing his body for the NFL? And, re- and
0: rehabbing and getting ready mentally and talking to agents and that type of thing. But anyway, let's move on to... Colorado basketball. They had their media day today. A lot of excitement buzzing around about the team this year. They've gotten a little bit older, a little bit wiser, a couple impactful freshmen coming in. We're going to talk about a couple things in regard to the media day, one of which is the impact that Juco transfer Shane Gatling will have for the team. And then we're going to talk about the growth of the four freshmen on the roster being McKinley Wright, Evan Batty, Deshaun Schwartz, and Tyler Bay. And later on we'll get to Dallas Walton's unfortunate injury and talk about how the team replaces that. And Unfortunately, we have to talk about the one Denver team that's lost four games in a row, the Denver Broncos. But beginning with Gatling, he was one of the best uh, players at the JUCO level last year. Great three-point shooter. A little bit smaller. He's only 6'2", probably a shooting guard, two guard, Mm -hmm. with the buffs with McKinley running the point. I think he's going to be in line for a lot of playing time this year, especially with how good he shoots on the outside.
1: Right. They're going to need him because they don't have that many proven scores on this team. Last year they relied on George King and Dom Collier a lot for their three-point scoring. This year, obviously, they're gone, so they're going to need to rely on Shane Gatling and Deshaun Schwartz as well to try to hit three-pointers, and I really, really like Gatling. I think he's already gotten a lot bigger since he's been here at CU, and that's going to help him a lot as he's driving in the paint and all that sort of stuff. And he's he's a legit scorer. The way that he shoots the ball is just so beautiful. Ted, I, Ted Boyle said it earlier. Day.
0: Every time he puts a shot up, it looks like it's going in. It's 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 that insane. I have high expectations for him this year, mm-hmm. to be completely honest. And I think... I mean, Tad, look, he likes to do it a little bit different. We saw George King come off the bench a little bit last year as the six-man. I think he should be starting the games a lot, though, because when you think about the impact he can have early in the first quarter, knocking down shots, putting the buffs up, helping swing the momentum in their favor— I think the sky is the limit for this guy, and I think that's why he should be playing early is he should start you know establish a rhythm so to speak, with this team. Mm-hmm. I know that's something they like, especially
1: to do. as a Juco transfer that's now a junior. he does have some experience he played a little bit of d two ball at um, Niagara, Niagara, yeah, which is a pretty high level and obviously at Juco, so he does have some solid experience. um I wouldn't be surprised at all to see him starting i The only reason I'm hesitant to see that is just because I don't know who's going to spell McKinley at this moment. Yeah, I think – Who's going to be his backup point guard? Yeah. You almost have to kind of have Gatling be in that situation, which would make me think that he might be coming off the bench because he's going to come in to play the two and the one. Yeah. Yeah. Rather than relying on him as a starter, but I do think he, he has starter potential this year, and we're probably going to see a mix of yeah. five throughout the season. Yeah, so.
0: Tad Tad Boyle is known for not really establishing a set rotation in terms of who's starting till you know about seven to ten games through mm-hmm. the season. He Usually likes to, it's in
1: Pac-12 play. It, yeah, it he likes it, he likes Pac-12.
0: to experiment a little bit early on, but that's a really interesting point that you brought up, brought up Chase, about Gatling running the point. I don't know. I just don't see it. I see him as a guy who moves away from the ball, not as much of a passer. I mean, obviously he'll get some assists and you know whatnot, but I don't see him as the type of guy who's going to run the point. I see him as more of a person you try, a player you try to get in space for shots where he can make plays and also to try to draw some double teams and bring other guys open. I don't really just see him as a point guard. It's true that you need a good backup one because, look, McKinley can't be out there for the whole yeah, game. Yeah, you're going to play
1: him 40 no, minutes? No, no,
0: no, 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 no. That's 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 a, that's a valid point and a question to ask. At the same time, I don't know if you, you start Gatling at the one simply because of his skill set and his attributes. I really, really like him as a two guard. Maybe he comes off the bench with a less experienced one, but that that's something that I'm going to have to keep an eye on.
1: Right, I kind of think you can u- utilize him as sort of a, a bench weapon that comes on and plays can play the two or the one or even the three at times when you want to go really small. It'll be interesting to see how he utilizes him I haven't even been able to get out to a practice yet, so I feel like I I can't talk about this team as much. Yeah, I I
0: understand what you're saying. I was was out a few days ago, and Gatling was the eye-popper who every time he put a shot up, it was like, wow. And he has a really nice stroke. But anyway, four guys who are going to be important to the success of this team. Remember, they were ranked ninth in the preseason poll. Obviously have a little bit of a chip on their shoulder at this point. But the four sophomores, McKinley Wright... Evan Batty, Deshaun Schwartz, and Tyler Bay. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go through all four of them, and then then I'm going to ask for your commentary on what I think about each of them. McKinley Wright, one of the better players, not just in the Pac-12, but in the country last year, Turn the ball over a little bit too much. I mean, that's kind of expected for a freshman. I think working with Chauncey Billups in the off season is going to help him improve on that aspect because Chauncey during his playing days, not just here at CU, but in the NBA, was known for not turning the ball over. Mm-hmm. I think that's going to help him. Evan Batty, obviously... been My one
1: comment on McKinley. uh, Go ahead. Pac-12 player of the year. I would love to see it, and I think there's
0: no reason we shouldn't, especially with all the work he's done, not just with Chauncey, but with Kim English in the Mm offseason. Second up, Mr. Evan Batty, a guy I happen to know very well and like a lot for his upbeat personality. Every time I'm around him, it seems like everyone in the room is pretty much smiling That smile hides all that he's been through. Last year, he was declared academically ineligible because of family issues that he went through back in L.A. And then later on in March, he suffered a stroke, which kept him in the hospital for a little while. This is a guy who's been through a whole lot, not just on the court, but off it as well. But I think he's going to ball out this year. That's the good news. I think he's a three guard. I don't see
1: him at uh, the two. So I, I think they're going to be forced to play him as a big man. As a big man, yeah. I think with the Dallas. And and and, injury, and, I, and I, be love, to I love
0: I love we'll bigger. get into that Walton injury in a second by the way, but I love his physicality mm-hmm. down low. He plays bigger than he is. He's only about six seven, which for a forward in the Pac-12 is pretty small. But he's physical. He plays hard. He has some nice moves in the post that I saw in practice the other day. Mm-hmm. He's good at making plays in the paint. I'm really excited to see him this year.
1: Yeah, he's a he's a really good shooter. People don't expect that, but he's a very efficient scorer from anywhere on the floor. Anywhere can, on the floor, yeah. He can shoot from the 3, he can shoot those 15-foot jumpers. He's a really good shooter. He can move the ball, he can dribble. That's make a, plays underrated. off the dribble, which mm-hmm. is a, which is impressive for someone of his size, too. So, yeah, I think he's going to be a great asset to this team. It is interesting where where are they going to play him? I think that's yeah. That's the greatest debate right now, and with Dallas Walton getting hurt, I just think they're going to have to utilize him as a big man. I think he can play at the three, the yeah. four, or the five. I don't
0: see him at the five. I see him playing in the, at the four. Potential. I think they might end
1: up starting him at the five. Really? I, I mean, who who are your yeah. starting five right now? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, Do you play because I just don't know. Seward isn't a great isn't a great five. Tyler Bay's obviously a, a skinny five. He might be tall enough, but he's a skinny five. Seward can't really defend. Yeah. So I, I don't know who you play at that position. We'll, we'll talk it? about the starting five it's a little bit in a second.
0: I just want to finish up on the sophomores, oh, yeah. the incoming Sorry, sophomores. So, yeah, no, no problem. This is all good discussion. But the third guy I want to talk about, I think he's probably the most important. Call me crazy. I think he's perhaps the most important player to the Buff success this year, even though he's not the best player on the floor. Deshaun Swartz, shot 38% from beyond the arc last year. Very good as a freshman. He needs to be more aggressive at times, though. He settles too too much for outside jumpers. I know he's a good three-point shooter, but you don't have to live beyond the arc. When you watch basketball games in the Pac-12, the team that usually shoots the easiest and the best shots wins the game. From what I've seen, right, mm-hmm. and I think Deshaun needs to be a little smarter with the basketball in terms of shot selection. But I loved what I saw out of him in his freshman year.
1: Right, as long as he can be an efficient scorer, he can be a, a huge asset and a great team.
0: player on this team as well. Mm-hmm. So
1: I, th- I think the sky is a limit for Deshaun. The uh, the lefty shot is it's a beautiful stroke that it he is. has. It's just a little bit of a slower release as compared to like Gatling yeah. and some of the other guys, but yeah he is a great shot, and he will knock him down i have we didn't get to see him much drive to the rim that much; he needs to do it more though, yeah, I don't think he's excellent at it, but I definitely think he needs to do it more. And I'll I'll be interested to see how he's kind of developed that part of it. And
0: talking to coach Roan and Boyle earlier in the week, they said they could potentially live with a couple turnovers from Deshaun if he's being more aggressive and it's working more times than not, but they don't want to see him just sitting back there and getting lackadaisical with the ball and settling for shots that aren't great. Now he should shoot some of his shots from the outside and some of the harder ones that have a much uh, lower makeability, but Uh, at least percentage-wise, but I I just, I I think for him to take that next step, he's going to need to be a little more aggressive in terms of getting to the rim, one, and to his shot selection, even if he makes a couple of moves, uses his handles to get inside, and shoots a free-throw line jumper. You know, he just needs to be a little bit more aggressive in getting the shot he wants and not settling for the one that the defense gives him. That's kind of where I'm at with Deshaun.
1: Right. I, I agree with you. He just has to make smart decisions. He doesn't need to be a special player. He just needs to
0: play smart.
1: Play smart. Yeah. That's
0: that's a good point. The fourth guy, we talked about him a little bit earlier, is Tyler Bay. Mm-hmm.
1: This might be the most important
0: guy. for Yeah, that, potentially. You can make the argument for either him or Deshaun being the most important. But I think Tyler is important for a different reason. Dallas Walton went down with the torn ACL in practice a few days ago. They're going to need Tyler to be that big guy inside who grabs down the hard rebounds over seven footers and be that type of presence in the physical presence in the paint. So that's why I think he's going to be important. And he needs to take more shots from from, you know, desirable shots, too. I think at times he's settled to pass the ball off. No, he needs to take matters into his own hand and be a little more aggressive personally, just
1: like Deshaun does. Mm-hmm. Tad, Tad said today that he is probably the most, uh, de- he, he's the most developed player uh, since last year. He, he's gotten that much better, Tyler Bay, and he's become a much better shooter, like you mentioned. Last year, he, j- he just wasn't that good of a shooter. A lot of times he just settled for layups and dunks which worked yeah. last year but he's going to have to hit some more shots. He's going to have to take more shots. Apparently he's added a three-point shot. A lot of people say that in the off season even yeah. about NBA guys and I don't yeah. fully believe it. I want to I'll believe it when I see it.
0: Yeah. But um, And he doesn't need to shoot that many shots from three. He just needs to take more
1: smart shots. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? He just needs to be a better shooter and <coughs> but I do think he's going to be huge on the defensive end. They really yeah. need him to be a rim protector which will be an interesting role for him. Last year he played a lot at the four and a little bit at the three even. So it'll be interesting to see um, if he can play the five position with the Dallas Wall injury. He did play there a little bit last year, but yeah. he's just not that big. He, he gets handled in the post sometimes. But I do think he can be a solid rim protector.
0: But touching on Dallas's injury, the two guys I think who are going to have the biggest part in taking over his position, Lucas Seward, and Jacob Dombeck, the international uh, big man. Whichever one of these guys emerges, which as of right now isn't clear, is going to have to replace. Is going to have to be a big man because it's going to be hard for this team to win with that one. Quite honestly, Sewer is six eleven. Kind of fits the characteristics of a bigger center, but at the same time, he's a little bit skinnier, and he kind of got bullied around a little bit last year by some of the bigger centers in the Pac-12. Obviously, DeAndre Ayton. Um, The number one pick in the NBA draft gave him a hard time, which quite honestly is to be expected. But the point I'm trying to get at is that he's just going to have to be a little bit more physical down low because they need they need a big man right now.
1: Right. I think I think you hit it right on the head there. And I think Tad, uh, he made a really good point today during his press conference that he he wants to see Seward take that lower lower classman to upper classman jump. And if he can do that, he can really help out this team this year. Uh, we haven't seen it yet, but as long as he can become a little bit more powerful down low, like you were saying, whether it's defending or even on the offensive end, a lot of times he, he just likes to go back to that three-point line, yeah. whereas I think he's going to have to be a solid rebounder for this team because they just don't have that much down low.
0: Yeah, and touching on Jacob Dombach, he's really a guy we haven't seen too much as an international player, but. He's going to have to grow up pretty quickly. As, as a freshman, as a guy who, who's playing a position that the team needs, we, he's, he's going to have to have some impact of some sort, uh, especially given the fact that Lucas isn't going to play a full game at, this, at the center position, and they don't really have a bona fide five on the roster aside from Lucas right now. So Dombeck is going to need to uh, step up and fill that role too. Um, as we talked about a little bit earlier, it's kind of unfortunate In hindsight, that um, Torrey Miller-Stewart transferred, they could definitely use a guy like him, a veteran presence down low. But you got to play what you have in this game, in this league, and in this profession, quite honestly. It's just kind of the nature of the business. So those two guys are going to just need to step up, period, going forward.
1: Right, and it'll be interesting to see uh, how much of an impact Dombeck can make this year. I, I was one of the few that really liked his film, when yeah, he was overseas. I I'm getting,
0: I'm getting a few texts from some of our listeners who have their doubts about Dombeck. I personally disagree. I think he could be a good big man down low.
1: Yeah, and I think he's really athletic. Yeah, so some people would call it sneaky athletic. I think he's just really athletic. You can see him running up and down the floor. Yeah, in his film, and I think he can add something to this team. It'll be interesting to see. I think it all depends on how well, how good he is on the defensive end. And I mean, do think he has offensive game. But if he can shut down some of the f- better fives that they're gonna play, then he will be able to make a solid.
0: Yeah, game. but uh, that's an excellent point. Touching on the defensive aspect. Of that whole situation. I think he needs to focus on being a defender first and foremost and grabbing down big rebounds and that type of thing. This team has a couple proven scorers on the roster, guys they expect to step up and score a lot of points. So at this point, I think you just really need him to be a good defender because that's really where they were lacking last year. When you go back and take a look at it, it's defending the big man, not having a big man who scores a lot of points. That wasn't the problem. Mm-hmm. I think it just he just needs to be good on defense. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, these big men can score. Tyler Bay, Lucas Seward, they can score. They're fine on the offensive end from what we've seen, but I just don't know if they're able to guard, yeah. guard the better fives that they're going to face. Yeah,
0: that's, that, that's a good point. He is a little bit on the skinnier side too, maybe needs to bulk up a little bit, but if he can use this as athleticism and physicality, he may be able to find some success. Anyway, moving on to high school sports wrapping up the Wednesday evening Hal Stern show, and then we'll take off for the weekend. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Ty Evans. Chase was actually in attendance at the game um, against Fossil Ridge game against Littleton. Um, they won that game pretty easily handed. Let me give you a score update, and then we'll get into that. Fairview defeated Fossil Ridge 48-21. They're 6-1 on the year. Aiden Atkinson, the quarterback in a... CU target is feeling it right now. Boulder High had a 20 to nothing win over Rangeview. They're three and five on the season. Fairview will travel to Fort Collins. The Boulder Fort Collins rivalry never lets down, does it? To play Podre High School this coming weekend, while Boulder High will travel, will stay in Boulder to play the far northwest Warriors. But moving on to Ty Evans, the guy we'll see here on campus in January, and his explosive performance what did you see out of him
1: uh well he was 14 for 17 four touchdowns i think it was like right around 250 yards and he only played one half so that speaks for itself then yeah it it wasn't against great competition he plays in 3a in colorado so obviously he's going to play some pretty bad teams but um he he looked really good to me i i know that it wasn't against great competition but there were some times where he had to scramble out of the pocket and, and make a throw down field, and I was impressed with the couple times that he was able to do that. He never looked rattled or anything like yeah. that, and that probably has to do with the competition. And his
0: and his the mental toughness, when we had him on the show a few weeks ago, he talked about that aspect of it, not you know getting caught up in your own head and your own thoughts when you're out there, just relaxing and playing football, and I think that's probably benefited him as well.
1: Right. He, he just looked comfortable out there, and, and that's kind of what you want to see. Um, and then to touch on Aiden Atkinson a little bit, uh, I got to write about I got to write about him, so go check out my article on buffstampede.com. But uh, CU does look like they're in a good place right now. He's a little bit slow with his recruitment just because uh, he's worried about his high school football season, so he's not taking any other visits besides going to a couple CU games. And um, I think they're going to be battling with, in particular, Northwestern. And a few other schools there, it really looks like he's going to make academics a priority in the school. I mean, it's
0: it's kind of a fine line that you have to tippy-toe along, if you will. You want to start. You want to get playing time. You want to show you're a good player. But at the same time, this is a guy from Boulder. You know, he's, he's focused on, and he goes to one of the better high schools in the state as well. So he's going to be focused on the academic component of it. And look, you can't play football. There's no dinosaurs playing football, right? So, you know, you need to
1: think about life after your sport as well. And the one thing I didn't say is he uh, currently leads the nation in both passing yards and passing touchdowns. Yeah. Which is very impressive because that... That's just very hard to do. I know Fairview throws the ball like pretty much every play, but it is still impressive to be at the top.
0: Yeah, I expect him to get several more big-time offers before his time recruiting, before his recruiting is over. But anyway, this has been the Howell Stern Wednesday evening sports show. As always, we had a great time talking about sports with you guys, and we will be back at it again next week. And I promise we'll talk about The four loss, hopefully not five by the time we talk about it next week. Denver Broncos as well. For Chase Howell, I'm Jack Stern.